right, go ahead. Incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm Rosie, and this is my best NPR voice. You just heard the musical stylings of Karen Krolak and her dog Quacks. Stay tuned for Humans Talking. Okay, we're going. Great. All right. So welcome to Supper Club Accoutrement. Maybe what well, maybe a little condiment is what this is. Um, so I'm here talking with Karen Krolak, who as a kid I knew as my dance teacher and as the creative director of Monkey House Dance Company. Um, but it turns out she was also doing a very eclectic variety of other things. Um, so I got this from her website, a magical fighting chicken, a door knocker for Steve Carell a technical writer for a computer science PhD thesis, a choreographer for a movie that starred John Corbett in a chicken suit, which I Googled and could not find, <laughs> the first official artist in residence at the Newton Cemetery, as well as a costume designer, a tea monger, and a professional shoe blogger, which the last one makes a lot of sense. I can't believe I never put that together. <laughs> um, so I just, I know that everyone's gonna wanna know about the Steve Carell thing. So before I really get into the meat of this, Karen, tell us tell us about uh, who you are and how you were a door knocker for Steve Carell. So I graduated from Northwestern University in 1993 with a degree in linguistics and a big idea that I was gonna be a professional choreographer. And uh, the first job that I got out of school was um, working backstage on a production called Tour de Farce. And it was one of those two people shows where each person plays like eight different characters and um, they're kind of constantly going off stage. And while they're off stage, they're getting changed into another outfit. And so somebody is like knocking on the door for them so that like you think that they're there and like waiting to go into the scene. And so in between like yanking people in and out of clothes backstage, cause you know, like half of our job were these enormous like zip up the back outfits that they would be wearing. Um, I would be like knocking on the door. And it, at one point um, the writer from the Chicago Sun-Times actually came and watched the show from the backstage. Um, because at the time, like nobody in the show was a big name actor. In fact, the woman who played opposite Steve was the person who was like, you know, the one that everyone knew the name of because she was a big regional person there. Whereas like her understudy is Alexandra Billings, who was on Transparent. And, you know, Steve Carell has now gone on to like fame and fortune around the world. Um, and so she came to watch us from backstage and she was amazed because we changed their clothes 104 times in a 90 minute show. Oh my God. And so, Wait, like, so it's like more than a change a minute, like, or oh is it yeah, per, oh per, yeah. Per we person? were like, like backstage yanking people in and out of clothes, sending them back out in one scene. Um, it was in the dark. And so like, I actually was on stage with him and uh, you'll like this. I had to be dressed in a nun's outfit playing an accordion. Um, <laughs> And uh, I also had like another part of the show where every night I had to like break a glass to make it sound like he dropped something. And so I had this big trash can that I was like dropping things into. Um, That's what you want backstage at a show is a bunch of broken glass. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> in, a, in a backstage area that's basically the size of like a closet that has like four dressers running around in. In and, the dark. And in the dark and like all these different props that we're trying to pass out with one yahoo who's me banging on doors you know and breaking things like it couldn't have been any better and i have to say steve was the nicest human to work with he was super kind to like everyone and in fact like i don't know maybe three years after we'd worked on that show he was walking down the street one day in chicago and ran into like one of my friends from like just a friend of mine who had been backstage one time and he was like, hey, I met you, you're friends with Karen, how's she doing? And it was like, <laughs> look at that. You know? <laughs> not what you'd expect to be like, hey, your friend ripped my clothes off. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. And like surprisingly different context. (laughs) And and when the, um, when the review came out of the backstage area, at one point I had apparently said to the woman who was reviewing, because, you know, I'm jumping over her lap to like, go do things. And she was like, now, are you just a dresser? And I was like, I'm not just the dresser. I'm the door knocker. And like, there's this whole (laughs) list of like Karen adjectives of the nonsense I was doing backstage that she quoted in the article. So for a while, that was the thing that used to come up when you Googled my name back when Google first became a thing was like this ridiculous thing about me being a door knocker, a glass breaker, an accordion playing none and something else, you know. Yeah. I mean, doing any of those things for Steve Carell is like that, that's, you're famous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that's it, you know, just put that in the obituary and we're done. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, awesome. So, that aside. <laughs> To get into the the meat of what we're going to be talking about today, um, if you can't tell, our conversations often derail into a lot of tangents. And so I picked a specific project that I want us to talk about that's, I think, super relevant to the world we're all experiencing right now. And another day, we will definitely do something food related, and we will definitely do something (laughs) on all of these different experiences but for now, like, let's start with the quintessential, like, Karen Krolak project, and that is the Dictionary of Negative Space. Um, so could you give us some background of the Dictionary of Negative Space? Like, for people who've never heard of it, what is it, and why did you make it? So um, the Dictionary of Negative Space is an interdisciplinary lament that looks at where we lack language around grief and mourning and repair. Um, And it started uh, in 2016 um, as I was trying to make sense of my life um, in the aftermath of having had my mom, my dad, my brother killed in a car accident. And what I found was that people couldn't understand not just why it was taking me a long time to kind of move forward in my life and to not just be like sobbing on street corners again, Um, but couldn't figure out like what I was doing and why it seemed to be taking so long to get through this. And um, I would explain stories to people and people would be like, that can't, that can't be real. Those things like, does that really happen to people? Um, And so I began thinking um, because I'd been interested for a long time around this idea of words that exist in other languages but don't translate into English. And in fact, for a while, Monkey House like had a whole series of pieces that we were making around that because we had a show that we wanted to build around that idea. And so we would look at like, what is an idea that is captured really succinctly in another language that isn't in English? And by doing that, it made me really aware of the concept that maybe we were just missing words in English around grief and mourning. And so the first thing I did was kind of go to other languages and try and find what they might have. And I was kind of surprised that even doing that, I wasn't coming up with things. And so I was working um, on my master's degree uh, in interdisciplinary arts at Sierra Nevada University and was working with a mentor. And I had said to him one day, I feel like there's just 30 words. And if I could just find these 30 words we'd be good. They're like, I could just move on and explain to people what's going on. And I sat down that night and started writing out the list of what I thought the 30 words would be um, and came up with about a hundred just sitting (laughs) that day. And there are things like, we don't have a name for a person who outlives their child we have a name for a child who doesn't have parents, but we don't have a name for a child who has one parent who dies. We don't have a word for um, the fear that you're gonna forget somebody's voice. And yet like when you talk to people who go through extreme grief, like that's something they're obsessed with. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have a word for um, the desire to touch someone who's no longer present, you know, and it's a word that I think we've all come into familiarity with this year. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I started looking at this and then I started trying to figure out what to do with all of these things that I was kind of gathering up. And people began asking me uh, if I would just come up with names, which I totally understand. I'm the type of person that you come to and you want to name things. 
but I felt like it was more helpful for people to understand what PTSD is like to not see the word, but see a space. And if I put a bunch of letters there, then I was afraid that people would look at it and say like, oh, well, you just didn't know the word meant somebody whose sibling has died. Um, what was wrong with you? Whereas part of what I was trying to figure out was why I couldn't explain what was happening to me and how many holes there were in trying to have conversations. So I began putting together like a blank space and then next to it, there would be like a bracket that would have a number. And that way you could track them and you could put them into sentences and people could kind of know like there's not a word there and it's the, this number of them. Um, and I first launched the project as a um, online exhibition of the words that I'd found along with different types of illustrations. Some of them were sound recordings, some of them were choreographic descriptions of things, some of them were photos and other types of illustrations like you might find in a traditional dictionary. Um, I was not prepared for what happened. I kind of figured like a couple people that knew me would look at it and say, well, isn't that nice, Karen? And that I might then be able to just move on with whatever I felt like I was gonna go back to. Mm -hmm. And within days I had people I'd never heard of in other countries who were sending me notes saying, I've been looking for this for a long time. This makes so much sense about what I've gone through. Um, and I kind of knew in that moment that this was gonna be a project that was gonna be with me now for a lot of years because there's so much depth to keep digging into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you have things like, you know, the world changing and yeah. things like, you know, international Pandemic. pandemics, yeah. And all of a sudden you've got like so much fodder for this and so many more audience members, so many people that are looking to consume something like this. Well, and so many people who suddenly can make sense of a lot of the grief that was mentioned before, you know, because we're not a culture that does well um, with pain mm -hmm. and with grief and with loss. And, um, you know, we, we tend to really alienate people when they're going through that. Like we want people to grieve privately behind doors, come back and have some heroic story or mm -hmm. else be really quiet about it. Like we do not want to hear people um, returning to the workplace who are like, I just can barely get myself through. I, I have no idea how this is going to continue. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, show up to like something that they're supposed to be giving a presentation on and just bursting into tears. You know, like we just, we don't have a way of kind of integrating that. And what's been really fascinating is how the extremeness of the moment that we're in right now with the pandemic of so many people grieving so many different things all at once mm -hmm. that I think it's really highlighted for people why we need to be discussing this, why this is something that we have to acknowledge to be able to move on through. Um, and that being able to acknowledge it doesn't mean that there can't be moments of joy within that landscape of words that we can't identify. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to be stuck here forever, but it means that we have more empathy and understanding for when people go through things. Um, you know, I thought it was fascinating this year um, around the holidays, how many people I knew we're talking about not being able to gather with their families and how that led a lot of people to reach out to myself, other people that I know who've lost their parents and family members and say, oh, I, I've never thought about what this is like for you before. Mm -hmm. Oh, like either, how do you get through this? How do, you know, you've done this a few times now, how does this work? Um, but also like, what kind of support do you need? How can we be helpful? And I feel like we can't get to places like that until we can identify 
what's missing or what we don't know. And that's always really hard because that isn't really the way that our brains are wired. Mm -hmm. One of the things surrounding empathy that I think is really powerful about the dictionary is that in times of struggle or in times of loss, I think it, it can feel like you're, um, you suddenly just become inarticulate. Like on top of all the things you're experiencing, you're like, am I just dumb that I can't find the words to explain this? Like they must exist and I just can't. Mm-hmm. And I think that your work really puts a spotlight on the fact that we as a culture, as a world, but especially the English language, you're not, you're not dumb for not being able to articulate the things that you're feeling. Like the, the words truly don't exist sometimes. Well, and also, you know, like, it's interesting. I had, so part of what I began doing after I kind of launched the first part of it was I began interviewing a lot of people who'd been through types of grief and loss. And one of the people that I'd interviewed was a woman who had lost her only son. And part of what she was talking about was like the struggle that she had because she didn't feel like she was a mother once her only child had died. So it was this identity shift that had gone on. And I was asking her if she felt like there should be a um, word specifically about that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And we had this really interesting conversation where she was saying that she felt like you know, part of the reason that we don't name a parent who loses a child is because that used to be so common. You know, women used to lose babies all the time. Women used to die in childbirth all the time. And so she felt like it was so common, we don't talk about it. And yet, as I said, you know, we name morning and we name evening and they happen literally every single day. But the reason we name them is because there is an important shift that goes on when it stops being light and our needs as humans. And there's an important shift that goes on when it starts being light. And that by not acknowledging it with a word, we're saying that that situation doesn't warrant something. And I find it deeply, deeply disturbing mm-hmm. that we have the word MILF, mm. MILF, as many ilfs as you could possibly imagine in our language that have just popped up since, you know, the early 2000s, because there's a market for selling women under that name, Mm -hmm. but there's not a market for caring about the tremendous pain that parents go through when they lose a child. Mm -hmm. And that we, we can, I mean, it's obvious languages change all the time, every day we're adding in things and we adopt new ideas. We haven't looked at that and said that's important. And I feel like maybe if we had that word, maybe we'd look at school shootings a little bit differently. Mm. Maybe we would look at things differently if we had names for them. Because like when you look at the words that we do identify as being, um, specific types of grief that we kind of honor with a a noun. There's widow and eventually widower, although widow was in our language for hundreds of years before we got to widower. And there's orphan. And those were named not because we feel like those are specific types of like sadness that are remarkable, but because they used to require custodial care under the law. You named a widow because legally somebody had to be able to take care of her and manage her money for her. Mm-hmm. You name an orphan because someone had to take care of that child and manage them. And we only added widower into our lexicon after women could own property. And mm-hmm. we felt like it was there and now we needed to do something else. And so when we go and look at that, that then brings up questions of like, how do we rethink who's important within these things? And are there different types of grief that we should really be attending to and understanding differently than we are if we could track them and see how they wind up having ramifications later on? Mm -hmm. What you're saying too about words, lacking words kind of being a representation of like our lack of empathy for that group of people or like it's like a visibility issue like if you can't put a word on it then we Mm -hmm. can't say like oh like blank should be supported more 
Mm -hmm. And also blank cannot find other blanks to rally together. Like, have you seen any kind of community formation around any of your entries in the dictionary of people being like, oh my gosh, like I didn't realize that I was part of a category of people. Maybe I can source support from. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. So um, there's definitely been a number of people that have reached out to me, um, especially through Twitter about the um, sibling who has a dead sibling Mm. um, and how invisible that particular category felt and that part of what has really struck a nerve with a lot of them is in the dictionary on the website um the sample sentence about it talks about how um research was done in scandinavia around um what happens to people's health after their siblings die Mm -hmm. and they found that there are profound changes um uh in terms of levels of heart attacks, strokes, and suicide um, that aren't even related to how the sibling died that affect the remaining siblings. For men, it's 10 years after the death of a sibling, their rate for those three types of death goes up by um, 20% more than the rest of the population. For women, it's 15 years and it's 30% higher than the general population. And that says by not looking at it, by not thinking about it, we might be missing some of the reasons why heart attacks are on the rise within women, you know, and like by not giving that a label and a place, we also often don't have within human resources policies time off for people for death of a sibling in the same way that we do for death of a spouse, death of a child, death of a parent. And yet the health consequence of that is significant and um and you see you see when people reach out and talk about it that 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 there is this sense of am i even allowed to say this is really difficult for me because so often as a sibling your concern goes to either your parents that you know are really suffering from this or to your siblings children if they have them Mm -hmm. and that sense of the question of like who's allowed to grieve um one of the one of the entries is about competitive mourners um Mm. becomes really a huge question of how we acknowledge that so that one has been big there's also been a lot of discussion around this question of parents not having a word that there's been occasionally people have tried to come up with a word for um outliving their child none of them have really caught on in English. Um, There's a group of people on Twitter right now who are using the phrase bereaved parent, that they are bereaved parents, but um, it's often done only in a very formal way, and they still talk about the awkwardness of trying to introduce that into conversations of like, how do you, how do you say that that's what you are? And especially if you are a bereaved parent, but you still have a live child. How do you talk about that with people? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's this weird introductory thing. And and that it has been something that a lot of the parents have said is such an isolating problem already that not being named that feels like it's a further slap in the face. And in fact, Um, there was a obituary that I read from one of the parents who had lost uh, a child in the Lockerbie bombing, um, which was, you know, decades ago. And in his obituary, the last paragraph is about how he spent the rest of his life trying to get justice for his daughter. And he says quite clearly in the New York Times, when you lose a spouse, you're a widower, a widower. When you lose your parents, you're an orphan. When you lose a child, you're nothing. Mm-hmm. And it was like so heartbreaking to see that mm-hmm. being something that is really clearly definitive for people that they feel like isn't being acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, one of the things that's been interesting is the people who often are around somebody who's bereaved, who've reached out to say, I'm so glad you mentioned 
this thing can be a trigger for people or that this thing is painful because I would have never thought about um, things like um, the date that you last saw someone alive, that that's mm -hmm. different than the date that they die. And that that's something that for a lot of people is not really something that they pay attention to, but can be this day that is a horrible day for them and they just can't figure out why. Mm. And people will say like, now I think about asking people when that day is and have noticed like, oh, that's really interesting because that every year has been a day that you've been really coming apart at the seams. Um, or um, things about like having an awareness that the fear of losing somebody's voice is going to be there. So saving for people a, a last voicemail or the you know recordings that we have of voices and making a point of gathering those together for someone so that they don't have to realize that that's what they're missing. And then once they realize it, that they can say like, here it is, here's all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and so those have been really interesting. And it's it's been quite moving that people have handwritten letters to me about the dictionary, you know, and that just speaks to me in a time when most people don't even bother to leave a comment on a page that they would take the time to sit down and write about how important it's been for them to have more understanding or to feel seen. Mm -hmm. It's so important for those reasons. And also, honestly, like, I feel like it's almost like a support guide and like a preparation guide. Mm -hmm. like, I feel like you've put so many um, lessons and so many, like just so much. It Like I remember after you like telling me about one of these things, like many years ago, like I started saving voicemails from loved ones. Mm -hmm. like, I have voicemails like in the cloud that I was like, you know what? I want this forever. Yeah. Just in case, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. sort of like a, it's like a, it's a guide that you don't want to have to have but as somebody who like witnesses somebody have a loss like it's like a gift that you can give that you're like mm -hmm. this might actually be helpful to you like and it's going to be helpful for me to be able to support you yeah yeah and it's funny i mean it's it's amazing what happens when we have a little bit of advance warning you know of like okay there is, there's no way that losing people in our life is ever going to not be painful, but it can be less painful if we've thought about some of these things and have been able to savor them while we were there or not just thrown them out or um, been able to really think about these things before we lose things mm -hmm. because we take so much for granted. And, you know, as we've all learned this year, like you take away some things and suddenly we're like, oh my God, I had no idea that that's what I needed to get through my day. But, mm -hmm. you know, now when we go back out, as I keep saying to people, I'm going to be a total freak, you know, like I'm going to be looking at people like, I just, I just need to see the way the light looks on your hair <laughs> from the back, not like from the front with the part that is on the zoom all the time, but I just need to see the back of your head. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just need to sniff you. That's what I need. I need the, the sniff of friend, you know, because I feel like we yeah. don't, we don't think about it until it goes away. And I think, you know, part of what, part of what was really overwhelming and really um, why it felt like, oh, this experience is worth being able to dig into was like, the weirdness of losing three family members at one time cannot be explained. Like it's, it's, it's a whole that like I knew I was struggling with, but I began noticing the problem that HR people were having with me that like, when you go to fill out forms, um, people didn't know quite honestly, how to file the paperwork because it just didn't fit into the boxes that they had going on. And um, like one woman, I spent probably an hour and a half on the phone to a woman from the social security office um, because she could not wrap her brain around who was dead and who was alive 
and how to be able to put this into paper. And it got to the point that it was almost like a stand-up comedy routine with her of like, no, nope, nope, <laughs> like, am I on like a talk radio show right now? Like, is this yeah, it was like, <laughs> nope, that's, that's my dad. And my dad and my brother both had the first same first name. So that made it confusing. But she also, because I didn't change my name when I got married, believed that I was married to my brother. And so like at one, like we, we went round and round. I mean, it just, nothing was fitting into these forms. And then they would get really mad at me. And I, and like, that was always the point that was like, and I learned to be able to say to people, you know, this has been difficult for me too. And like, and, and you would get this, like, you don't understand. I'm going to have to make a whole new file just for you. I'm going to have a whole new file. And it was like, I, I, I do appreciate that. That's tough. <laughs> but what was funny was that entry in particular got a lot of people to say, well, you know, I kind of felt the same way with you. I didn't know how to process what was happening and there were times when it was just frustrating for me you know mm -hmm. and and i knew that it was so overwhelming that like this is an extreme situation and those are often in science where we find the information that we need for the everyday you know it's like when we speed up atoms to like the fastest thing that's when they separate out and we can say like oh well that's how they've been operating all along and I feel like we're kind of at a similar point with the whole world shutting down, you know, mm -hmm. like this is just so extreme that like, we're going to be just digging into this for years. This is a rich compost. Amazing to be data points happening right now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to like grow from for decades to come, you know, um, and that most people, I mean, God love them. Most people don't have to go through that all at once. And so, um, being able to say like, okay, by seeing this in this really intense way, here are things that might be helpful under less extreme circumstances. And then also realizing like there are so many more beyond what I can even comprehend situations of how people go through this. And if we as a community had better insight into how to support them, you know, we might be able to take better care of each other. Mm -hmm on that note of kind of taking care of each other and how the world right now is this crazy data point happening. Mm -hmm. Like, have you added anything or do you want to add anything to the dictionary based on this last year? Oh yeah, yeah. I've been, um, I've been working away on a whole bunch of entries. Um, I started, when I first began uh, in the pandemic, I was really rethinking. Um, I'd been artist in residency at the Newton Cemetery, as you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. And part of what was humbling and really uh, moving for me about being in residence there was realizing the stigma that people who work in the death industry live with on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And, um, you know, while I was there getting to witness the type of care and love that they put into their job and how many of them see it as a way to be able to help people at the worst moments of their life. Mm. And yet, you know, if you look at our stereotype of a grave digger or like people that work in funeral homes, there are these like morbid kind of awkward, crazy people, you know, we don't see them as being these empathetic and caring humans. And so I had come up with a first version of um, some dictionary entries that were about them. And um, when the pandemic started, I became really aware of the fact that we were talking about the heroes in our culture being doctors, nurses, people that were working in grocery stores, um, we weren't talking about any of the people working in cemeteries and the people working in cemeteries were having the same PPE shortages. Mm -hmm. They were working incredible hours. Mm -hmm. um, they were dealing with not just the influx of um, all of these people who were dying from a disease that spread through bodily fluids and now they have to be interacting with these bodies, but dealing with the chaos early on of not even knowing who was symptomatic, who wasn't symptomatic, like everyone had to be treated as if they were um, a COVID death. And 
we weren't acknowledging them at all. Mm -hmm. And I tried to like, you know, people would put things up on Twitter and I would say things like, and the people who are our last line of defense, you know, the cemetery workers or the people in the death care industry. And people got really mad at me. They mm -hmm. did not see that as being opening a conversation, but somehow being uh, morbid or... Mm -hmm. um, looking at the wrong end of the spectrum. And mm -hmm. so I, um, I saw a call for um, a new museum that's in Chattanooga, Tennessee that just opened actually in December, it's called Stoveworks. And Stoveworks is in the site of an old um, casket factory. It is across the street from one of the um, largest national uh, cemeteries that we have for our military, it was built mm -hmm. Um, during the Civil War. Actually, it was um, consecrated on December 25th. And um, it was huge. And so this was originally the casket factory across the street, and it's now a museum. And they were having an exhibit called Teachable Moments. And um, I applied to re evaluate some of the things that I'd worked on at the um, cemetery. And I actually built this um, new version of the dictionary that is um, words that were all related to um, to the things that I learned in the cemetery. But I also made it so that um, from one direction when you're reading it, it's in English. But then from the other direction, um, if you flip it upside down, it's in Spanish. Mm. Um, and I did it that way for a couple of reasons. And one was that in working at the cemetery, I interviewed everyone in English, but they often had translators from within their environment. And then I presented the information back as a really, really ignorant, socially engaged artist back in English and didn't think, I should translate this for you. You've given your time to help me figure these things out. I'm going to present it to you in English. So the first thing that I knew I wanted to do was present it in Spanish as well. But then translating into Spanish brings up all these other interesting questions mm -hmm. and finding the right translator was a huge thing because I needed somebody who understood that it was important to get to kind of the weird poetry of things mm -hmm. and I found this really amazing translator whose name is Erin Goodman and she really took the time to dig into the challenges of some of the things fitting very easily into sentences and some of them really needing to rework because like the grammar of how it was working in English couldn't work in Spanish or there's a way in which when you say it that way in a sentence other things kind of come through and it highlights that it kind of goes back to where we started with there are things that make sense in one language that don't make sense in the other. And there's something I think that's really powerful about having a version of this that's in another language that says, well, yes, English may be like the kudzu that's taking over the world as a language, but it has holes, it has imperfections. There are things that other languages do much easier than we do. And that that's why it's worth holding on to other languages. And I really want to start working on some translations, especially because I feel like the pandemic in our country in particular has had significant consequences for a number of minority language groups. Um, you know, whether we're talking about Spanish speakers, um, the indigenous nations that are in our country that have been suffering at rates that are far beyond what the rest of the country is. And the fact that, you know, those endangered languages are not getting the same attention as some of the other larger languages within our country, to even the question of sign language being a part of our ongoing um, announcements, you know, that it took the last administration being sued by the federal by being sued by um, the um, oh it's one of the foundations for the blind had to I mean for the for the deaf had to sue them so that they would start having people doing real time ASL interpreting 
at the White House. They did not, so they got that passed. A judge gave them the okay that they had won. That was in September. It took until November before we started having ASL translators at the White House's coronavirus briefings. So when you look at how language and which language things are in and which languages we don't have things in affects things and affects people with this pandemic, being able to dig into the panoply of languages that exist in our culture every day and how people are or are not getting information is a huge part of what is adding to the grief and loss and problems that we are experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and of all the times for there to be, for it to be so glaring, our communication barriers, like when you're not allowed to bring anyone into your, you know, into the hospital with you or, you know, mm-hmm. necessary precautions. But like, I, I, ha- I wouldn't have even thought of people not being able to get the communication resources that they need with those limited interactions. Um, that's crazy. Well, and when you think about it too, so, you know, one of the things that um, linguistics has studied is that we tend, even if we learn other languages in our life, we tend to kind of have our um, longest running memory in our first language. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about how many of the people that have died from this pandemic have been people in their 80s and their 90s, as oxygen levels drop, as other things drop, like the part of the brain that stays the most active is this first language. If we don't have translators in those spaces, Mm -hmm. imagine how much more isolating and terrifying the whole process is if you're suddenly on top of everything having to mentally translate stuff and things aren't necessarily getting, getting there. And, you know, that translators are also a big part of what's been keeping the hospitals functioning and working but have also been a category of people that we haven't been looking at as having put their lives on the line in the same way Mm -hmm. um you know there's just there's so much there's so much that gets wrapped up in language that we take for granted when we believe in the myth of one language being able to describe everything for us and so why shouldn't everyone just adopt this language you know wow yeah I mean, I mean, even going back to what you're saying too about people in the the death care industry, mm-hmm. and then the translators, like these sort of unsung heroes, like the common thread is like they are doing the work that we don't want to think about. Like yeah. we don't want to think about somebody in a ho- in a, in a hospital room not being able to communicate with their doctor. Mm-hmm. We don't want to think about what happens after after you know after you die. Like you die, and then. And then you have everything's gone. Yeah. And everything's gone. And, you know, I feel like one of the visuals that kind of woke some people up was seeing in other countries, the images of like the mass graves happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all saw that and thought that's really disturbing, but we didn't necessarily zoom back to be like, how can we appreciate that? That's not happening here you know we're struggling to keep up and yet somehow it seems as though we've managed to maintain some dignity through Mm -hmm. all of this um and it's truly I mean I can't imagine having to be the one to be enforcing COVID regulations on a grieving family and being like no you can't have this funeral be the way that you want it to be yeah what a horrible horrible job to have to have and to not have the clout of a medical doctor behind yeah. your I mean it's it's it is so um it is so hard on so many people and to be that that like human who has to stand there and say look I know that you would normally have plenty of people here it is not a sign of a lack of love for this person we just can't have all of you together in this room without masks on and I've known a number of people this year who have both lost people to COVID or have lost people from other things. And there is a real need for gathering as people at these times. And it is so palpable, the pain and frustration and anger that's going there. And to have to be the person who is, 
not just suddenly having more clients than you would normally have, you know, all at once, but to have them all be people who are isolated and nervous and um, not able to think clearly. I mean, it's just, it is a, it is a recipe for so much frustration and anger that people have. And at the same time, they are putting their lives on the line, you know, and we're not having um, big signs outside of cemeteries that say, thank you, essential workers. You know, we're not, we're not looking at what is the impact on this field? What is the post-traumatic stress for this group going to be um, in the same way that we're starting to talk about for our doctors and our nurses? Um, you know, and I think about how to some of the cemeteries in the Boston area over the summer became places that people were all suddenly going to because they were outdoor spaces like Mount Auburn had to close for a while because mm -hmm. so many people were going there to be able to enjoy the landscape, get outside, be out in, in nature. And yet it, they couldn't handle the number of those people and the number of people that had to be there for the cemetery to stay open and to be able to be running funerals for people. And mm -hmm. You know, I think it again just speaks and people were mad that they would close. You know, that was the response was like, how could you do this? Rather than stopping and saying, what have you been going through? What has this been like on your end? You know, because again, we just see them as this caricature from Hamlet, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So zooming kind of out a little bit to any you know average person listening to us mm -hmm. talk about this right now i i kind of look at you as the queen of being able to take experiences like honestly like this or uh, happy experiences sad experiences or you know these things that are so difficult to talk about and even difficult to comprehend and kind of turning them into something productive and artistic and like you know there's so much stuff that we could and honestly have the right to be angry about right now. And I think, you know, that anger is healthy, but like, what, what are ways that you kind of as a mentor and artist can advise like the average person to be able to channel some of those feelings into something that they might be able to look back on and say like, okay, well, I, I at least created something during the mm -hmm. time that was utter shit. No, I, I think that's such a good question, Rosie. And that's, you know, part of why I've always really adored you um, from the time that I first met you as a kid all the way through watching you grow up. Um, you do have like really great ways of kind of thinking bigger picture. And I would say the first step for me is allowing yourself to get curious about that thing. You know, for me, the moment that I could look at and say like, what are the words that I need that then launch something. And, you know, I think for people who right now are really aware of what isn't present, mm -hmm. to be able to think about that, like, what is it I miss about that? What is it that I want to be able to um, remember in the future? Or um, what is it about this, this emotion that I'm experiencing is new? And either think about how to be able to write that, draw that, take pictures of that, but like share that with other people. Because I think one of the things that is really helpful for all of us is when we don't feel like we're the only one going through that. Mm -hmm. And so much of what makes us as humans uncomfortable is isolation, which is why right now everybody is kind of in this fight or flight sort of moment in our brain. But if we can bring that back to a place of realizing um, right now, I'm really missing the ability to go into a yarn store and like pet all the different balls. <laughs> so like and smell the yarn and yeah, you know, and so like if I can do something that says like, okay, so I'm, I'm missing that, like what's a way that I can um, think about how to be able to show people what that's like and either like gather up clothes from your house and like 
this is me petting this and like having having it as a gots guide to your to the textures of your wardrobe you know like <laughs> that can be a totally crazy way of rethinking that that then when you send it out to other people other people are like oh my god yeah i've been having the same thing except like for me it's x or you know i absolutely want to go into the yarn store but for me it's all about like the colors so let me put together you know mm-hmm. and that moment of then not being the only one does something to our mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say the other thing is to really notice um, how to be able to um, document for yourself what these things are that you're missing mm-hmm. so that when they come back, you're able to really enjoy them. Um, because I think that's the other side of a lot of things is like, you know, when you can, when you can say, okay, right now I'm going through the pandemic and I have no level of creativity in my soul. And I just, it is enough for me to get out of bed. And for a lot of people, that is all it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but once the world, and it will eventually shift back to something that is more like what we used to know as normal, once it gets there being able to say to yourself the first time that you can go out and have ice cream without having to wear a mask and sit in a public place and eat that without having the mask going up and down and getting ice cream all over your mask (laughs) really savor every bite Mm -hmm. for that person that you were six months ago 12 months ago who would like do anything to be able to do that Mm -hmm. that then opens up different spaces of creativity too and I think that you know, both sides of that, either allowing yourself to really dig into the creativity now or to say, I'm kind of storing this away so that I can have those moments when it comes back. Um, and I, I think the more that we can all be able to talk to each other about it, you know, that's been one of the things this January is um, National Choreography Month. and. Uh, Monkey House has been working with um, Nachmo Boston uh, on all of these like mental health happy hours as well as helping people choreograph and it's amazing how much just being able to sit and talk with other people who are also going through what you're going through can remind you that it's possible to get through this but when it feels like this is just impossible in front of me you know and then you know, you can say to somebody, I'm having a bad day, I need dog pictures, and they send you dog pictures. And you know, that's an easy way to be able to help somebody. And then like, you realize I could have a whole website that's just dog pictures for different days, you know, Um, you could have um, peachy pictures for, you know, days when you're missing being able to take the train into work, you know, (laughs) this is the healing picture for that, you could have a whole thing that is just that for people. And it would be a funny response to everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of incredible, like how those very simple things that we, you know, took for granted. I feel like everybody keeps saying this, like, I can't believe I used to take that for granted. And like, Mm -hmm. I can't take that for granted in the future. Um, But kind of when you bring in that like sensory aspect to it like I think that is what a lot of it is really missing and I think you know the things like the zoom the zoom happy hours with coworkers, Mm -hmm. like that's what's missing a lot of the time there is you're like I'm I'm here but I'm just not I'm not getting the feeling of like being in a space that's not my own and like sharing the same drink as you and Mm -hmm. like you know having like unfamiliar smells around me like it's it is like, it's one of those times where like, honestly, probably just creating a journal right now without any kind of artistic flair to it yep. will be a, could be an installation in, mm-hmm. in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think just allowing ourselves to recognize what we're experiencing is important, mm-hmm. you know? And I, th- I think that's, that's something that feels very basic, but it's amazing how many of us just need to be told that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What you are experiencing is valid. It's Mm -hmm. important. Hold on to that, you know? 
One of the beautiful things too, I think, is like how this has sort of ripped the bandaid off of people being very open about talking about mental health. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like I'm somebody that kind of was bringing it up before this, but I feel like as of kind of last April, I feel more empowered than ever to, you know, talk about what, you know, antidepressants I really like Mm -hmm. really helped me. And going to therapy, like, you know, it's not something I feel like I have to be shy about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people, you know, to the point of, you know, it's just so helpful to be able to talk about these things. Yep. Yeah. There's a certain level of vulnerability that we've all kind of reached. That's sort of nice that I hope we bring forward. I do too. Cause I, I think that part of it actually has to do with the fact that we are constantly inviting people into our private spaces now. Mm. You know, like yeah. we are all unable to kind of hide behind our front doors. Mm-hmm. And that that veneer coming off has been so liberating on so many fronts. You know, yeah. I've loved going to Zoom talks and seeing people that I idolize who are giving a lecture have to like turn off their computer and, you know, move a dog from the room yeah. or like shout at a spouse. You know, like there is something that makes it so human again. And yeah. I think that that has had a lot to do with people suddenly having to think about the kind of weaker parts of the fabric of our social lives. You know, mm-hmm. that like I loved when um, things started going into lockdown here in Boston in March. And it was like March um, 12th when I stopped going out. And by April 1st, people I knew were sending out letters that were saying, be aware, people will be getting their EBT cards and their WIC payments. They will need to go to grocery stores. Mm -hmm. So in addition to paying attention to um, the times that people who are high risk for the disease need to be there and people that are elders, Keep in mind the first few days of the month are when people who have been waiting for weeks to get food into their house will be going in and going grocery shopping. And if you have the luxury to go on other days, either go now and stock up or wait a few days. Like if you can afford to be ordering food then, order food then so that these people can get food. And suddenly seeing people thinking about what we have not noticed are the rhythms going on around us, I think also help to open up conversations around like, check in on people that you know are depressed, Mm -hmm. check in on people that you know suffer from, um, you know, seasonal affective disorder, all of those things. And I think that really has been humanizing again, because it's amazing how many people live with invisible chronic illnesses, with, different types of emotional, cognitive, or um, mental illnesses, and how much easier it is to be able to say, you know, I, I deal with depression, I deal with PTSD now than it was even, you know, a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess kind of wrapping this up uh-huh. with respect to the dictionary, like, what is your kind of dream going forward as a community? Like what are, when this is kind of, you know, quote unquote, all over, Mm. like what is your plan for the, like, do you have a plan for the dictionary? Like, what are you hoping that we as a community might create together? Like, I feel like there's going to be a lot of, I almost felt like when Biden on inauguration day was Mm -hmm. when I started this newsletter, I was like, okay, a weight, one weight is lifted and it's freed a creative place for me. Like as somebody who's witnessed so many people go through that evolution of like having weights lifted and allowing that to create creative space, like what do you anticipate for years to come? Well, I'm hoping that there's more versions and iterations of the dictionary. I mean, both ones that look at the the way that it translates between different um, communities, but also I feel like there are potential ways that this isn't just a problem that exists around grief. I think that there um, 
there is a lack of language around a lot of the problems that we have in our country and that there might be other versions of this that through collaborating with different artists who have a different viewpoint on that could take kind of the format and idea of the dictionary of negative space and have additions that are based on other topics you know um and i feel like uh in a kind of dream world, it would be something that eventually kind of grows bigger than me, you mm -hmm. know, that it becomes something that um, kind of evolves out into being a concept that we have that is sort of like an encyclopedia and that some of those things that were in the initial version of the Dictionary of Negative Space have communities that name them and start being recognized for them so that we don't need to keep that there anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that that just kind of goes into an appendix of like this number used to be this thing um i feel like uh being able to um attend to details of our lives through it will also shift the more people that kind of use it and um interact with it and they can find it by the way at um on the internet under dictionaryofnegativespace.com um, there's also for people that have a harder time with reading things online, there is a published version of it that you can get at um, that you can find through a link on that page or um, at lulu.com. Um, and then there's a bunch of different versions that have been coming out for various art projects that are around and available. Um, Nicole, uh, my longtime collaborator and close friend, Nicole Harris, is hoping that eventually someday I just have like a shelf that's all of the various iterations of it for her. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm I'm curious to kind of see how by going and looking at different communities, like I would really love when people are feeling like they can process things again to go and be uh, artist in residence at a hospital and be able to talk to the staff there about what their experiences were, not just the doctors and nurses, but including the doctors and nurses and including the chaplains and the translators and the people that are on the evening cleaning crews and the people that are um, emergency room technicians, like everyone, and just seeing what are we missing about your experience that we should know before you have to go through another thing like this again ever or what should we know that is helpful for understanding um the way that when there is any kind of big you know natural disaster other things that we should be thinking about how to take care of things um and to look at translating that into the languages of the people involved you know rather than just doing it into english and so i'm really curious about what can happen in that space of opening it up and letting it kind of become its own thing without me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you just told us where to find the dictionary. What mm -hmm. else should we be keeping an eye out for this spring? Um, so you can also, um, a few of the other projects, uh, Stove Works for people that are in the Chattanooga area is a uh, open museum at this point in time and the exhibit there on Teachable Moments will be open through March. Um, and uh, for people in the Boston area, um, Monkey House, which you can find at Monkey House Loves Me, has been doing a whole series of COVID collaborations where we've been partnering with um, organizations and artists across the area to be able to uh, share resources that there's greater resiliency within our community both now and moving forward. Mm -hmm. So far we've been able to partner with over 63 artists and arts organizations in the last year and just in the last month through Nachma we've been able to work with 30. Um, so it's it's really exciting. Um, there's also um, for people that are interested, there um, there is a really great group of um, support networks for people that are grieving that are on Twitter. Twitter is an interesting social media for um, people going through loss. And people should also be aware of um, an organization called The Dinner Party, which is um, specifically for people uh, who are younger, like in their 20s and 30s, who have um, lost a loved one and want to be able to find 
community support and it's people gathering sometimes once a month, sometimes twice a month, just having dinner. It's not really like a therapy session, but it's a mm -hmm. place to be able to um, get together and know that everyone else there has gone through loss um, mm -hmm. and has been a wonderful resource for a number of people that I know. Um, and if you're in the Newton area and uh, you're looking for a beautiful place to go walk around, go walk through the Newton Cemetery and Arboretum. It's an um, it's a really beautiful um, landscape and uh, historical area that has plenty of interesting birds and animals. And if you go there, be sure to um, take a moment to say thank you to the amazing staff who work there because they are incredibly caring people who have been working their butts off in the last year and um, you know I think need just a few more high fives kudos and not necessarily honking horns because that's not really appropriate in a cemetery but yeah you know, <laughs> kind of like you are amazingness mm -hmm. um, I think that's I think that's all of the things that I would say just, just that yeah just that <laughs> just yeah. that that short list yeah yeah, yeah okay. I'm so glad that you I it's a perspective I had not thought of I have not heard anyone talking about I'm so glad that you brought it up um thank you so much for joining me today um all of the links and I'm gonna get like photos of the um of the dictionary that the two sided mm -hmm. dictionary from you um I'll put on my like WordPress website that I have going on so supperclubnewsletter.wordpress.com you can find an archive of what we've talked about so far in previous newsletters and you can also sign up um i think that's it excellent Thank you, karen thanks for having me as Rose. always I'm super excited about the supper club i loved the first issue and i just i think it's going to be such a great thing to get to follow along with i'm so excited 